This is the new TC Pride Podcast, episode 100, on location in the Treader History Archives at the University of Minnesota. All right, so here's the elevator. It's going to take us 84 feet underground to the caverns, which are located in the sandstone on the riverbanks of the Mississippi River. So your ears are probably going to pop and depressurize like they do when you do major altitude changes. So we're going 84 feet underground for two main reasons. One is that in order to preserve materials, we need to keep them cool, dry, and dark. And when you go that far underground, the conditions don't change. It doesn't matter what's happening at the surface, 100 above, 40 below, it's not going to change down here. So it's much easier for us to maintain perfect archival conditions because we're underground and we're essentially insulated from the, the environment at the surface. It wants to be dark down here, so that's easy. It wants to be about 60 degrees, which is where we want it, so that's easy. It is, does not want to be dry down here, so we do have to do a lot of dehumidification to get this nice, cool, crisp air. But again, much easier to maintain these conditions when we're not fighting the temperature swings at the surface. The other reason we're down here is because this is an enormous facility and there's no place we could be on or near campus where we could have this kind of real estate. But down here, we have it to ourselves. So we've got a small building at the surface, Anderson Library, and then the elevator takes us down underground where the caverns extend way back under the law school um, back into the, into the river bluff. So we're now 84 feet underground in the caverns underneath Anderson Library, and this is where we store the archival material. And you showed us a window here. Can you tell us a little bit about this window here and, and the limestone on the other side of it? Well, they put a window in the building so that you could look out and see what's going on. So this is actually sandstone. We are in the bluffs near the Mississippi River. We're above the level of the river, but we're well below the level of the building um, at the top of the bluff. And the sandstone is what they carved out. There's a limestone cap above us. We're in the sandstone, they carved that out, they put in supports to maintain the integrity of the opening, and then they built the cavern walls inside of that. So this is one spot in the cavern wall where there's a window and you can look out and see the sandstone on the outside. And does the sandstone and limestone help with the humidity control down here? No, it's very humid. So we want it cool, dry, and dark. We're underground, so it's dark. That's easy. It wants to be about this temperature, about 60 degrees, so that's easy, but it is not, it is not dry down here. So there's a lot of dehumidification that goes into this nice, cool, crisp air. And is that the fans we hear in the background? That's the fans. So that's the dehumidification. There's also quite a bit of uh, air movement going around. This, these are enormous spaces and you don't want it warmer in some spots than others. Uh, we've also got a lot of filtering going on because with, with uh, tens of thousands of boxes down here and millions of books, you don't want to have to dust. Now we're going to go into the first of the two caverns. There's two caverns down here and they're both quite large. And the first cavern is the Minnesota Library Access Center, MLAC because everything has initials, of course. So the sounds that we hear are the fire doors opening because we want to make sure everything's protected. So if a fire breaks out in one place, it doesn't keep going. Right, but we're going to be really quiet in a second because we're going to go into the airlock. And here we are in the airlock. Ah, silence. All right, so we're going to open up the first cavern here and you're going to see what the scale of the building is. 
the doors as the doors open, we refer to this kind of as the Indiana Jones moment. It's where it opens up, and in Indiana Jones, they, they have that moment in the warehouse where they're backing out from the box, and it, and it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and you're kind of overwhelmed. So when you walk in here, it's kind of the same moment in time, because you walk in and you can't see the whole cavern. Then as you come around the corner, it opens up. And this cavern is 660 feet long, or longer than two football fields. It's 70 feet wide, it's 25 feet tall and there's probably a million and a half books in here. So it is an enormous space and it's just kind of awe-inspiring to look down here and see all these books. Can you tell me about kind of how they're organized a little bit? These books are organized purely by size. This is not a browsing collection. So usually when you go to a library, you're looking for a topic and an author and you might find one book and find something next to it that's relevant. But this isn't a browsing space, this is purely a storage space. These are the overflow books for Hennepin County, Ramsey County, uh, many of the colleges and universities in the state, the University of Minnesota libraries. So they would have somebody request them, they would order them, they would be shipped back to the library where the user wanted them. So only the staff comes down here, and as a consequence, they're, they're stored purely by size. It doesn't matter the topic, the language, who owns them, none of that matters. We changed our books in Treader from Library of Congress to size. And in doing so, we saved um, over 40% on our shelf space, which was a big deal for us. And so this is like a super VIP behind the scenes access kind of thing. This is super VIP. You're, you, you're like in the, in, the special, in the special category. I'm loving it. And aren't we lucky, Great. We are, thank you very much. And you wanted to take a walk uh, through, the, through the halls here a little bit. So now we're gonna head back out into the other cavern, which is where we keep the archival materials. Back into the airlock. Exactly. Now we're walking back towards the archival cavern. So there's two caverns down here and two functions. And the nice thing about MLAC is that it's, everything is kind of perfectly in order and organized by size and it's got that great visual. And when you get over to the archival cavern, things get a little messier because all our things aren't that wonderful similar size like the books are. We've got blueprints and newspapers and things of all different shapes and sizes. And as a consequence, it doesn't look quite as nice and neat. And we may have a new sound in the background. What's, what's that sound for people listening right now? I'm just pushing along a cart right now. We're, we're constantly moving things at the archives. I didn't realize when I started working here that librarian is synonymous with weightlifter. So, Books get heavy in a hurry, don't they? They do. Um, the worst is glossy magazines. So when I'm lifting a banker's box of glossy magazines, um, that's frequently 50 pounds or more. Um, and that, that, that adds up. And so right now we're headed towards? Right now we're headed towards the room where the heart of the Treader collection is stored. And here we are. So the first thing when we walk in is we have to turn on the lights. Ah, okay. Because you notice as we walked through every place we can, things are dark and that helps preserve material that's been printed on paper. Uh -huh, okay. it's, the light actually damages the, the paper sometimes, right? Exactly, so you wanna keep paper protected, especially from daylight, but also from other light. So even within the rooms which are kept dark, materials are in boxes, which again provides another layer of protection from light. And if the unthinkable should ever happen and the sprinklers went off, it would help protect things from water as well. Yeah, it's nice and quiet in here. It is nice and quiet in here.
Hello and welcome to a very special edition of the TC Pride Podcast and the Beth Zemsky Podcast. I'm Ryan Garza from Pod Letter Media and I'm here with Beth Zemsky. Beth, how are you doing? I'm good, Ryan, and I'm so happy to be here with you today for so many reasons. Yeah, so this is actually a special episode for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, of course, is that this is episode 100 of the Twin Cities Pride Podcast. Go, Ryan. <laughs> Thank you. And this is also episode seven of the Beth Zemsky Podcast. And for people who might not know, so in podcasting, there's this old kind of anecdotal stat uh, that says that something like 90% of podcasts fail before hitting episode seven, yeah, which means that, you know, once you hit episode seven, you're kind of officially a real podcast. <laughs> so I feel like the Velveteen Bunny. Yeah. Yeah. So, so with that, you know, congratulations, Beth. Uh, we're, we're a real podcast. You know, how does it feel? Uh, like I said, I feel like I've been loved into being real by all the folks who are listening. And um, Ryan uh, tells me there are hundreds of folks who are listening now. Who knew? Yeah, quite quite the audience we got uh, now for the podcast. And uh, so on the Best Zemsky podcast, and this is where we usually talk about current events um, going on in the world. But I thought, you know, we'd kind of fast forward past that part today and jump right into introducing our special guest. So Beth, maybe you can let folks know where exactly it is that we're recording today and introduce our special guest for this episode. Yes, we are in the caverns of the Jean Nicholas Treader Archive uh, at the University of Minnesota, which is uh, one of the premier LGBT archives around the country. Um, and in this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about how this archive was constructed. Um, and it's important in this moment in our history with so many social movements going on, including the March for Our Lives, which was this weekend, to talk about the way social movement activity happens. And it's not just marches, but it's also cultural work like archives. Um, so as we think about the 100th episode of the Pride podcast and think about the history of the LGBT movement, I thought there was no better place to be than in the um, cavern where the heart of the Treader Archive um, is housed with its current curator, Lisa Vacoli, who is our special guest for today. Lisa, thanks so much for joining us today. You've actually been on the podcast before briefly, but would you like to tell people a little bit about your background and um, a little about where we are today? Sure, Ryan. Thanks. And Beth, I'm happy to be here with both of you today, and welcome to the Caverns at Anderson Library. So my name is Lisa Vicoli, and for the past six years, I have been the curator of the Jean Nicholas Treader Collection in GLBT Studies at the University of Minnesota Libraries. My past, um, this is my third career. My first career was working in shelters for battered women and their children, where I met Beth um, a lifetime ago. And uh, my career after that was working in politics and community organizing. And I had the opportunity um, six years ago to move from a board position at Treader. I'm actually one of the founding board members. And I had the opportunity to move into the curatorial position when Jean retired from serving as the staff here. And um, it was going to be a temporary gig while they looked for someone long-term, um, but I loved the work, and they loved me, and so they, they, they asked me to stay, and they, they kept me. Yeah, we, we locked the doors and didn't let her out. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever works, right? And we should also let people know that today's episode is actually special for three reasons, which one of them was a surprise to me. Yeah, what's happening Monday, Lisa? Oh, my, sorry, sorry. I was like, you put me on the spot. Like, what? Uh, Monday, I will be retiring, although Tuesday, I'll be coming back to work. So it turns out I'm I'm kind of flunking retirement. I clearly didn't get the memo. See, they lock the doors again. 
And so, Beth, there were a couple of things that we wanted to make sure and talk about today. Uh, I know we wanted to talk about the context for archiving and other forms of cultural work as vital social change and movement activities. Uh, we also wanted to dig a little into the history of the archives and how the project got started. And we also wanted to talk about uh, the archives' role in current and future movement activity. So maybe we can start with the first one. Beth, uh, what would you like people to know about the broader context for archiving that we chatted about in preparing for this episode? Yeah, so I'll start with that, and then I want to hand it over to Lisa, because I'm sure you have a lot more to say. But we've been talking a lot in the podcast in the past about values-based organizing and how important it is, particularly in this movement moment, to really think about ways to talk about and proclaim our values, because people really want to seek change at, uh, out of hope and vision and not fear and anger. And the way in which we often talk about our values is not just by words, but also by symbols, by things that we write, and by the kinds of things that the archive actually is keeping here. Um, so archiving in general, I think, and Lisa can talk more about this, is really about how do we think about the things that are most precious to us that convey our identity and our values, and how do we think about that over the history of the LGBT movement, right? Um, and just by way of example, we are actually standing in front of something that both gives me great pride and also brings tears to my eyes. Yeah, tell us about this. This is awesome. Um, we are standing in front of my uh, ketubah, um, which uh, was signed in uh, 2002 with my ex-partner, Jennifer Martin. Um, and this was something we signed at our commitment ceremony. Um, and it's a piece of art. Um, and ketubah in a Jewish context is a marriage contract. So this was our contract with each other before we could legally get married. And just sort of as an expression, again, of where we at in a movement moment. We could not legally get married, but we wanted to have both a religious and to some degree a quasi-legal commitment to each other. And so we made this ketubah. The sad part is, of course, I'm no longer with this person. But one of the things we decided as part of our breakup process, rather than burning this, which is probably what I wanted to do at the time, <laughs> was um, to have it as part of our healing to see our relationship and these sorts of documents as part of LGBT history. That these were a way at that moment in our movement history, we proclaimed our values of love and commitment. Now, after post-marriage, there's other ways we proclaim our love and commitment. But this is the, one of the things that is powerful about archiving. When people come back and look at our history, they can say, what did people do before we could get legally married? What were the ways in which we lived our values? And they can come to the Treader Archive and see this thing on the wall. I think uh, that also points out to something that's really important about the archive. The Treader Collection has the equivalent of 3,500 linear feet of material or 3,500 banker's boxes, which means we have millions and millions of pages of content. We have over a thousand textiles, 3,500 prints and works of art, tens of thousands of books, tens and tens of thousands of periodicals. Um, we've got amazing material and 99% of it has been given to us by people in the community because we want our lives to be known. We want our authentic experiences to be remembered. And oftentimes it feels like the mainstream media or the movies or uh, mainstream culture doesn't understand what our 
life experience has been. And so people have collected things and then they have brought those things to the archive because they want them to be known and remembered much like Beth did. Yeah. So one of the way oppression operates is the stories and histories of, of oppressed peoples often written by dominant culture. Um, and that is not what we wanted, which might be a good time to talk about how this all started because that was part of Jean's original vision. Well, I think the, the the other thing that's important to note, especially about the GLBT community, is that unlike many oppressed peoples, we don't grow up usually in families and support systems and communities that teach us how to be GLBT. Um, that's not as impossible as it used to be, but in the old days, none of us were raised in GLBT households. Uh, maybe we had a distant relative, you know, the funny uncle, the spinster aunt that we could turn to, but many of us didn't. Um, I certainly didn't have that person in my family and in my community that I could look to, to to learn how to be a lesbian, to learn what it meant, to learn what the what the language was, what the what the communication was, what the culture was, what the history was, and so the GLBT community is really even in a more need of a historic basis because we don't learn that as, when we're children and we don't learn that as we're growing up. And, and um, this, is, this piece that Lisa just said is a really important reason why Jean Nicholas Tretta started collecting. So let me tell a little bit of the story about how the archive came about and Lisa, feel free to add in. Um, so the story that Jean tells um, is that um, early in the HIV epidemic, well, for first of all, a little bit about Jean. Jean um, is, uh, what's the right word, an iconoclast? <laughs> Jean is a character. He's a character. Jean, you, 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 so, so Jean grew up in Little Falls in Minnesota. He served in the Navy during the war in Vietnam where he was uh, had really strong language skills. And he traveled around the world and served in the, the Navy, came back to Minnesota after his service ended. And he wanted to come to the university to get a degree in cultural anthropology studying the gay community. And he went so far as to track down a gay professor at the bars and try to get his help. And the professor in the university at that time said, there's no such thing. You can't get a degree in that. That's not a valid course of study. And in my mind, that was like waving a really big red flag in front of a really stubborn bull. And Gene just kind of said, yes, there is. There is a gay community. There is gay history. There is gay culture. And I'm going to prove it. And he started saving everything he could get his hands on. And I think what you were going to say, Beth, was that at some point, um, uh, some years later, he was trying to do a history exhibit, I think maybe on the 20th or the 25th anniversary of the Stonewall riots. And he realized that things were disappearing and that people were throwing things away. And that, I think, really ratcheted his, ratcheted his collecting up to yet another level. And he really took it on as a, as a vocation. I mean, he turned over his life to the accumulation and the preservation and the documentation of gay culture and history. And a particular moment in that story when he realized our, um, our history was being destroyed as quickly as we were creating it was early in the HIV epidemic when friends of his and community members, um, including Stephen Dean, who was the founder of HRC, HRCF at the time, uh, Human Rights Campaign Fund, died. Um, and he was watching his friends and, and community members' uh, apartments and houses being emptied by their families 
who might not have uh, affirmed their gay identity, might have had shame about them dying with AIDS, and was throwing their lives in dumpsters. And so Jean literally dumpster dove to save our history. And I think that that's a really important part of our story, is about how in the midst of tremendous death and tremendous grief, both personally as a community, Jean saw the hope and vision in saving our history um, and not letting an entire generation be erased um, by throwing their lives in dumpsters. So when I first met Jean was in 1996, Actually, I knew Jean before that, but where we really got to know each other was in 1996 when we were both Grand Marshal of the LGBT Pride Parade at the same time. So it's great to tell this story as the 100th episode of the Pride thing. So how I came into the story and how the university came into the story is Lisa said Jean had turned his life over to archiving. Um, and uh, I want to reflect on, on Lisa's comment that a lot of the work of an archivist is being a weightlifter which is an important part of the story. Because Jean at the time was working with troubled youth as a youth worker, and um, it, he got attacked at work by one of the youth. These were troubled youth, and they acted out their anger and frustration in various ways, and he hurt his shoulder. Um, at the time, his huge collection was living in his apartment. In fact, the collection was his apartment. He barely had any furniture. You, the collection was in every closet, every square foot. And he had really damaged his on, could no longer work, and could no longer lift a lot of the items in his archive, which is a really important part of the story. Um, at the time, um, I was the director of the GLBT Programs Office at the University of Minnesota. We had just gotten the, um, the endowment from Stephen Shockett to fund LGBT studies. Uh, which, as Lisa said, you know, when I first got offered this huge endowment, I went to University of Minnesota Foundation, and the endowment was to to fund LGBT studies. And the university said, "We have LGBT studies. I don't think that's a, I don't think that's a discipline." So even in 1994, 95, 96, the same. Um, thing existed. And that was part of our context, right? So at the time, Susan Raffo, who some of your listeners know, was a part-time worker with me at the Shockett Center. She was actually the first staff member at the Shockett Center. And she had heard about Jean's injury. And uh, we called Jean and we said, how are you? Do you need any help? What's up with the archive? Because we saw it as a critical piece of what we were trying to build about LGBT studies. And he said, I don't know what to do with it. And Susan said, can we come over for coffee? So Susan, I don't know if you know this part of the story or not. But Susan and I went over to his house for coffee and he showed us around. And every time we walked in a room, our jaws dropped. And they dropped more and more and more till they, by the time we got to the basement, uh, they were on the floor. Because part of what Lisa uh, didn't mention that's in the archive yet um, are thousands of political buttons, thousands of political T-shirts. So every protest, every movement um, that had a political purpose in the LGBT community, Jean had collected an artifact, right? Which is here, right? And, and he really did not know about modern archiving. <laughs> <laughs> or how to categorize these things had his own unique, would you say, Lisa, his own unique way of categorizing. So we spent some time talking to Gene about his vision, about where he really saw his archive, who did he want access to it, you know, how did he want it to be used. 
Um, and then we thought, okay, we need to um, act as community organizers because the university still didn't think there was such a thing as LGBT studies, did, didn't value the history of it. Um, so we talked to the librarians who are on um, my advisory committee for the Shackett Center. Um, Kimberly Clark was one of them. Diane Laggard, Laggard um, was another librarian at the time. And they helped us identify the librarians who they thought would be most likely to get it. We invited them. We did a little one-on-ones with them. We did a little um, good community organizing. And we invited those people over to Jean's house to see the archive because we thought there's no way we can explain this to them. So one of them was um, Tim Johnson, who was the archivist of Special Collection, because our first idea was this would just be incorporated into Special Collections which had a so- there was a social justice archive. We thought, okay, there could be a fit here. So we invited um, those folks over. It was Halloween. And Gene, in his typical Gene spirit, had um, apple cider and Halloween cookies for us and candy on his one piece of furniture that it was his kitchen table. And he walked us around the house. And I have to say, I don't know if you've talked to Kim Clark about this, um, but by halfway through, half the librarians were in tears, including Kimberly Clark and Diane, who were LGBT identified. They were part of the community because they, this was a librarian dream, right? The stuff that was there and it was in this guy's apartment. Um, So then they formed, um, quickly Tim and the other special collection librarian said, this is way too big. It needs to be its own thing. It cannot be just incorporated into another social justice archive. So then we formed a little committee to think about how do we actually get this on campus? Because we called the head librarian who was interested, but yeah, I don't know so much, right? And we figured we needed to get enough people behind this to actually get it here. So what we did is we formed this little committee and we thought about who are in good community organizing land, who are our primary targets, who are the people we most needed to convince. And we thought, okay, we need to convince the university president, we need to convince the head of the library, we need to convince chairs in departments that were connected to the academic project of the library. Because we, we knew as a community the library was valuable, but we needed to convince the academics that we actually had something called LGBT or queer studies and that this was an essential resource. So we had an event um, in the Mississippi Room in Kaufman Union. And what we did was work with Gene to um, organize his collection into academic topic areas. And then we had um, David Taylor, who was the Dean of General College and a historian, an African-American historian that was quite well-renowned as an historian, be our keynote speaker. We invited um, President Mark Udoff to have a few words. We invited David Metzen, who was a regent at the time with a gay son, to provide some words. We invited Jean to speak and the head of multicultural affairs. And um, we targeted the key librarians and the key department chairs. And we had the room set up with tables. This is anthropology. This is art history. This is science. This is psychology. We had like the room divided into key 
academic disciplines. And we had somebody from each of those disciplines who was a faculty member on our committee stand there and talk about how the material was essential to the discipline. So it's not just LGBT studies, but how our lives were integrated into all the essential disciplines of the university, public health, medicine, social work, whatever it was. And in the center of the room, and maybe we can walk over there and see this, was a book that was one of the most prized positions of Jean's collections, which was, um, it's a Sartre book that... Uh, it's a French book. It's You're talking French. about the book yeah. that belonged to Magnus Hirschfeld. Yeah. yeah. So there's a book that um, was pulled from the flames of... Um, I guess we're walking over there now. Well, I, can, I can bring it to you. Okay. There was a book that Lisa's picking up now that was pulled from the flames of when the Nazis burned the Hirschfeld Library in oh Germany at the beginning of the assault against the LGBT and Jewish community. Oh, my God. Um, I have chills right now. Just yeah. So you know. And in the middle of the room, we had this book with white gloves um, so that people could actually touch it because part of Jean's belief is that people needed to interact with history not wow. just observe it from afar. So we had the book in the middle of the room with one of our volunteers standing there explaining how special it was that this is a piece of our history that was literally pulled from the ashes. And this is part of what the archive was going to do, is we were going to save our history from the ashes um, of, of the oppression that was trying to destroy us. Um, so... The, yeah. book, the book is actually upstairs being used by a researcher right now, so it's not down here, um, which, is but, which is great. But anytime I'm doing kind of a public show and tell for mixed groups, we'll set things out on tables, all the different archives of show and tell, and we'll bring up a couple items. And they'll go, oh, children's literature, what do you have? And they'll go, oh, architecture, what do you have? Cool. And then they'll go, oh, it's gay, what do you have? And I'll go, this is a book that they tried to burn. And people will go, what else do you have? What else do you have that they're trying to burn? And it, it, it instantly changes the profile in people's minds from this is scary to this is something that people have tried to destroy and cover up. So I immediately then am able to draw them into a conversation about the other material we have in the archive because then they feel a sense of, of indignation that the, and that they, anything that people have tried to suppress and destroy must be important to preserve. So this thing worked. It got everybody saying, oh, just as Lisa said, this is core to our disciplines. This is not just, quote unquote, gay or homosexual. It's a brilliant strategy, by the way. I, I, <laughs> I am an organizer, right? This is what you do. You organize. You certainly are. But, you know, even after that, it wasn't quite enough, right? So then we started, the university started trying to negotiate with Gene to bring his archive here. So now there was desire, but not quite enough motivation. Right? There was openness, but not a quite enough motivation. Um, and so um, I tried to get um, the, the folks who write these agreements for, um, what do you call it, accessioning? Um, accessioning. Um, to um, actually write an agreement, like to sit down with me and Jean, because Jean needed somebody else there as his advocate, um, to write that agreement with Jean. And the what I got back was, yeah, we're interested, but we don't have the resources to do this. We're not going to devote any resources to do it. Find a way to write this agreement, and then we'll see if we'll sign it. I don't know if you knew that part of the story or not. Um, so Jean and I sat down. We researched how these agreements are written. Um, I drafted it, which is like bizarre that I drafted it. Um, I drafted it, and Kathy Brown, 
who was my boss at the time, who had been a general counsel and subsequently became chief of staff of the university um, because she was a lawyer, reviewed it in her spare time. She's also a lesbian, so she was personally committed to this, reviewed it in her spare time, helped us write it in legalese, and then we submitted it to the university. And there was a few back and forths. Uh, because one of the things that Jean was absolutely adamant about is that there would be no deaccessioning, that once something was in the archive, it was never to be removed, it was never going to be sold. And part of that was because other LGBT archives, like the one at Cornell, had sold some stuff. Actually, the deaccessioning in the agreement is that the curator and the library staff don't have authority to deaccession. Deaccessioning has to be done through the ad- Community That's Advisory right. Committee. Okay. Thanks for that. I don't even remember what was in there. There were so many versions. <laughs> I, I, I do as a curator cause, right. <laughs> because, because it controls my authority. Right. So once we have accepted something into the collection in order to deaccession, that has to be done by the community advisory board. And the other thing that I think was key right. to that I think was key to Gene was having a community advisory board mm-hmm. because he didn't want the collection to disappear into the libraries and never see the community and and be buried um and that's that's how i got involved is through the community advisory board so i appreciate that because the previous version of the agreement and then i think we landed on this thing about community control yeah which is really important um and so the archive came here what year lisa the archive the agreement was signed in 2000 the material actually came in 2001 and then gene served as the staff person until 2011 So um, a little tiny bit, I don't want to go too deep in this, but when the collection was first coming, uh, in that year we were first coming, there was no funding. So Gene originally came on as the archivist. This is so bizarre. He was finally going back to school to try to get a degree in LGBT studies, right? And um, because, and he was able to take some classes, um, I worked with him to get sort of dislocated worker stuff because he had never gotten benefits from the injury. And the way he was originally hired is I I only had funds to hire him as a student worker. So he worked for the um, GLBT programs office as a student worker for two years as he was taking classes. And that was the only way, only fund that we got from the university to start as the curated position. I don't know if you knew that one or not, but... Um, and then we slowly were able to hire him through funds through the Shocket Center, still not funds from the library, until the library came on with more of a financial commitment. So the founding of the Treader Archive was really, as, as Lisa said, 90, over 99% is donated stuff from the community, not stuff the archive has bought. And the money to start this came from um, the LGBT community to originally um, hire the archive position until the library took it over. I'm incredibly grateful to University Library. This is not a slam on them, but like any mainstream institution, it took them a while to understand the value of this archive and its role and important, not just for the community, but for the history of really good research and academic pursuit. I think since that time, there's been changes at the top of the libraries and in the in the in the leadership at archives and special collections. And I think today we are a very very highly regarded member of archives and special collections. We are um, among the smallest of the collections. We are. 
university? In the, at the university, yeah. There's about 15 collections from immigration history and the University of Minnesota archives and African-American literature and the Upper Midwest Jewish archive and children's literature. The world's largest Sherlock Holmes archive is right here. Um, and each archive has their own origin story and their own, their own staff. Um, but we are, I think, very highly regarded at this point. I have received very strong support from library administration during my time here. And I think um, we've, in the past two years, uh, gotten two national awards from both the American Library Association and the Society of American Archivists. Um, so I think we are very much on the map, both at University of Minnesota Libraries and nationally as one of the leading GLBT archives in the country. So I'm, I'm really proud of where we have come from Jean's apartment. Yeah. It's, and it's a great story about how our movement has evolved. So um, we only have Lisa for a few other m minutes. Maybe we do a little walking around. I just want to say what we're standing next to because yeah. every inch of this archive has stuff. So on one side of us is a poster from the 1987 March on Washington. This is the real deal here. Yeah, the real deal. Wow. Um, and then on our left, this is part of the reason the deaccessioning stuff is important. On our left, what we've got is a pile of books that look like they're going to be somewhere. Um, maybe they're going in, maybe they're going out, of Robert Maplethorpe stuff, stuff of Tom of Finland, um, who is, um, how do you describe Tom of Finland? He's a, a erotic artist. Mm -hmm. So, And then there's a, also here homoerotic photography. Um, yeah, so, you know, you can get the political on one side, the erotic on the other side, and that's just the place we're standing at the moment. Do you want to... Can you talk about this poster a little bit more, please, just so people understand what it looks like? Um, so it's a, a pink triangle with black and white um, crowds. It says, come out, come out, wherever you are. Um, and it's from the October 11th, uh, 1987 March on Washington. Some of your the listeners are going to know about National Coming Out Day. National Coming Out Day, which is October 11th, is actually the anniversary of this march. The uh, theme of this march was for love for life, we're not going back. It was um, sort of the this moment in HIV where the president had, I don't even remember if it was before or after the march, he finally said the word gay and finally talked about HIV. But we were... Um, you know, right now there's a lot of conversation about um, uh, life mattering, and this was a moment in our history where our lives didn't matter. Yeah. And so it was um, an important moment to sort of go to Washington, come out of the shadows, and really fight for our lives, which nobody seemed to care about. The other thing that's striking about this is the huge pink triangle, which some people might not know about. And I think when you start to look at materials like this from the past, you start to see when the different symbols were used and when the different language was used. So I talk to students when they come about the fact that the language people use is really almost like carbon dating. So do people talk about homophile? Do they talk about gay, gay, lesbian, lesbian, gay, GLBT, LGBT, LGBTQ? So when you look at what language someone's using, that really almost tells you what the, what the era of a publication was. And the same thing with graphic materials. So so the March on 87 has the pink triangle, which was the symbol worn by gay men in the Nazi concentration camps. And by the time you had the March on Washington in 1993, the rainbow flag had really taken over as the symbol. And so all the materials in 93 were the rainbow. But you can see in that six years how completely the imagery and the symbolism of the GLBT community changed. And I think somewhere in the archive is a piece of the rainbow flag from the Stonewall anniversary march. There was a huge rainbow flag that was like a half a block long. Um, 
and it was 20th, 25th anniversary of Stonewall, and Jean has a piece of that flag that was, it's somewhere in here. I'm, it, there's, I, I can't even begin to tell you all the things. <laughs> so um, as we, maybe we could walk around yeah, just yeah. a little bit. And Lisa, when the archive first came, I'm trying to remember how many pieces were in the archive when it first came. Um, I'm, I'm, I think there were somewhere between five and 700 linear feet of material when it came into the archive, which is, you know, a, a sixth of where we are now. But if you think about having 500 boxes of things in your living space, That'll that'll make you pause for a minute. Yeah, people have asked linear feet. Can you just describe that a little bit, please? A lin- one linear foot is a banker's box. So you go to an office supply store, you buy one linear foot of paper, and that's 5,000 sheets of paper. Now, most of us are never getting 5,000 sheets pack in that box, but it's on average, you can estimate that there's about 2,500 pages in each linear foot, which means that the Treader Collection has millions and millions of pages of content. There are a lot of boxes that that we're looking at right here, and we were going to take a little walk around. Well, first I want to say that as we collect, if you're trying to study a community, you are probably going to look at the materials that have been published by and about that community. And so we collect those materials. We collect the books, the magazines, the newspapers, the periodicals, the newsletters, all those things that are written by and for the community. As you're looking at that community, you're probably also going to want to know how people came together and organized around issues that are important, around spirituality and culture and athletics. Um, And so we collect organizational records. And you're also going to want to probably know the experiences of people in that community. And so we collect people's personal papers. And we collect the papers of both famous people, like Beth, and average... I'm not quite sure I'd say famous, <laughs> infamous. Infamous. Um, and also average people, because history isn't just, you know, the remarkable leaders. History is also the people who are just living their daily lives. So those categories, published materials, organizational records, personal papers, are the three main categories. And when Jean brought the collection to the university, it was largely published materials. Because organizations like the Minnesota AIDS Project couldn't give their papers to Gene, who was just an individual. But they could donate their papers to the University of Minnesota. So we now have 80 boxes of records from the Minnesota AIDS Project. So a couple hundred thousand pages of history and material. Um, which is part of how we've grown from, you know, the five or 600 linear feet that he had when it came here to 3,500 linear feet today. Um, My favorite item in the collection, actually, I don't have accessible. It is a newspaper clipping from the Minneapolis Tribune in 1972, in which they asked questions, uh, moral questions of young Minnesota adults. And they asked, do you approve or disapprove of the women's movement? Do you think people should live together before they get married? Do you think it should be legal to fire somebody because they're homosexual? And in 1972, they asked if it should be legal for two people of the same sex to get married. So the first thing that amazes me is that they asked that question in 1972. And the results are also amazing. In 1972, the responses were 50% in favor to 46% opposed on the question of same-sex marriage. And it's the only poll I've ever seen where there's a gender gap and men are more supportive of same-sex marriage than women. So it really makes me want to dig in and find out what was happening. Um, So that is my favorite one item. Beth is holding up something that I think is also really meaningful to me. That's a copy of one magazine from 1953. One was the first homophile publication in the United States of America. This is volume one, issue eight, and the cover story is on homosexual marriage. 
So what that says to me is that we as a community have been talking about marriage since we first had a way to communicate. 1953. Oh, my God. That was our first publication, issue eight, cover story, homosexual marriage. Um, so we have tens of thousands of books, again, periodicals. Um, we have, uh, for example, uh, materials in 58 different languages from all over the world. When I started, we had a copy of Fun Home in Chinese but not in English. So Alison Bechdel's book, uh, graphic novel um, in Chinese, which is pretty remarkable to look at because you see her very familiar drawings, but then, at least for me, um, I can't read the Chinese text. But we only had it in Chinese, so I brought in my copy of Fun Home in English and donated it so we would have it in, in, two, in, in both languages. And I think when we talked last time, you talked about how there are places in the world where they're a long way away from having an LGBTQ archive. And so you're actually keeping a lot of those materials here. We, we don't have a lot, but we do have, for example, one box from the gay organization in Sri Lanka because it's not safe for them to keep that there. But we do have materials, especially published materials from all over the world, from all over Asia, all over Russia, all over Europe, all over Central and South America. We have a very large collection of Spanish language GLBT materials. So a couple of our kind of premier collections, one would be our Two-Spirit collection. Uh, we had the largest collection of Two-Spirit materials in the world when it was eight boxes. Um, and since I've come, we've more than doubled it. So now we really have the largest collection of Two-Spirit Native American GLBT materials. Another premier collection for us is the Michael McConnell files. That Those are the papers of Michael McConnell and Jack Baker, the first couple in the United States to apply for a same-sex marriage license in 1970. It's an amazing collection. They have thousands of letters that they received from people all over the world. They were very public about being gay at a time when very few people were. And as a consequence, people reached out to them from across the globe. And it's a remarkable collection of letters and documents and really documenting the, the roots of the fight for marriage equality, which, which were in Minnesota in 1970. Some of that stuff was on display at the festival a couple of years ago, right? A little bit of that. I, I do facsimiles. We had a, we had a, a display of banners, um, panels, that we had done that showed some of their letters. And sometimes I'll bring facsimiles, I'll make Xerox copies of things. I can't bring the originals because I need to keep them protected. Um, our third really premier collection is uh, the are the papers of the Log Cabin Republicans National Organization and their fight for inclusion and respect both in society in general, but also within the Republican Party. I've had people come from overseas to, to work with those records. And the fourth one um, is uh, the Benjamin Karpman papers. Those are actually psychiatric and mental health records of people that were in St. Elizabeth Hospital in D.C. Uh, and were either being seen in private practice or had been institutionalized for region, reasons of sexuality and gender. So that is a very carefully restricted collection um, that people need permission to see, as opposed to everything else, which is open and available and anyone can use it. The Cartman papers were a little bit more care careful with because those are really sensitive materials, but they're also unique and they document people's experience with the mental health system in the 1920s through the 1960s. And the mental health system was one of the major locus of oppression for LGBT folks up until 1973 when the American Psychiatric Association voted to declassify 
homosexuality is a mental illness. It's one of the only times a professional association has voted on what is an illness or not. So these papers are really important to document how the mental health system was used to oppress our community. So I know we have very limited time with Lisa. And um, given this is your last day, which is why we have limited time with you, um, I would love to hear from you about how come you chose to do this as your last major piece of your career. Why this? Um, why this? Well, I got involved with the advisory board when the collection came to the university. I collect uh, books, and Jean wanted my book collection for the archive. I've got 4,500 books in my house, um, most le contemporary lesbian novels, but also over 1,100 lesbian pulps from the 50s and 60s. And Jean wanted those, so I'm a case of donor development gone horribly awry. Um, I grew up in the archival stacks. My father was the director of the Immigration History Research Center, which is located in this building, for 38 years. And we, we used to go pick him up after work, and he was never ready. And so my younger brother and I would literally play hide-and-seek in the stacks when it wasn't. But long before this building existed, now we couldn't do it. Um, this building uh, opened in 1999, but it's been part of my life since 1967. My father spent his career trying to push for the, the construction of a building to provide really high-quality archival storage for the materials at the university. And here we are. And here we are, yeah. So I feel a real sense of uh, possession and ownership about this building. So growing up with a father who basically pushed for the recognition and inclusion of the voices of immigrant communities and the acknowledgement of immigrant culture, um, it felt really natural for me to say, all right, this is what you do. You take the, the, the piece of you which is not being acknowledged, which is not being represented, which is not being valued, and you fight like hell to make people realize that there's value there, that there are authentic stories, and that those records need to be preserved and those voices need to be listened to. So walking into the archive felt like coming home for me. Um so one of the things that, that maybe we could just do a very quick walk and, and then say goodbye to you, but I, I want to make sure that folks understand how to support the archives. Um, and so let me just say how I do. Sure. I mean, besides occasionally giving money, um, I've donated. Um, one of the things that Jean taught me early on. Come here. I'll walk you over to your boxes. Oh, my boxes, yep. which I have more at home. Here we go. So here we are at the Beth Zemsky boxes right here, just in the in the main aisle, which I always walk people through, right next to the run of the Advocate magazine going back to 1967, um, and on the shelf next to um, the collection um, for Lisa Albrecht, who is a professor at the University of Minnesota, and Jim Kepner, who is involved in one archive out in L.A., and... Um, right across the aisle from Alan Spears' papers, one of the first out elected officials in the country. Several linear feet, I see. I'm learning some stuff. There, there are 18 boxes. Um, and one of the things Jean taught me early on is not to throw out anything. Um, and I have some more stuff at home to donate. Um, and in these boxes includes stuff from my uh, professional lesbian career, um, whether that was, you know, my personal notes um, at when I was director of the LGBT programs office, but also when I was on the board of the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force, um, I now have, oh yeah, look at that. Um, all the stuff is now way more organized than um, I thought it would be. So it's my notes from the, LG the LGBT programs office, but also the um, 
board books from the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force with my personal notes next to them, including my calendars. These little black notebooks. These little black notebooks, which are my calendars that kind of show what I was doing. 1991 we're looking at. Yeah. 1991. And it has like just open a date and it has things like AIDS group when I went to the chiropractor, (laughs) Um, you know, when I'm doing sort of YWCA um, lesbian health evaluation meeting. So it's kind of. And you brought bagels to that meeting. And I brought bagels to the meeting, right? (laughs) Detailed, I love it. So it really shows, you know, what a day in the life of a professional lesbian could have been over the years. Right. Um, the the stuff from the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force, I think, is important because it also has my personal notes in the margin about what I was thinking about as a board member. Um, one of the other things that's here that's not in circulation yet is during the early years of the AIDS epidemic, I was in a fabulous, healing, loving relationship whose name I won't mention because it's not public yet, um, with um, somebody who was an HIV activist who was in the middle of writing books about HIV as my brother was dying. And our personal letters to each other um, are here, which documents not only her work as an HIV activist, but there they are. Um, my um, experience of losing my twin brother and my expo- experience in the age epidemic, but also what it was like to be in a long-distance relationship between two women um, in the late 80s or early 90s. So we've got, you know, you can donate personal materials like that and if both folks have consent, um, but also put a time thing on it. Like these letters will not be public for this period of time. Did I get that right? Yes. Okay. So that you can donate personal stuff. Um, As Lisa said, it's important to have this stuff here. You can give money. And the other way that people can donate... Um, is I, with Lisa's help, have a thing in my will. It took me forever to write my will because I don't want to think about that. Um, I have a thing in my will that directs the executor of my estate to collect all of my personal files, including my digital records, and donate them to the archive. Mm-hmm. So I have in my will um, a digital, I forgot what you call it, but it's essentially um, there's the here's my records and then here is giving somebody permission to download or give access to my stuff on Facebook or any of my online stuff um, which is also something important for people to do and one more thing I wanted to talk about I think this is probably an appropriate time to uh, to do this is that um, the last thing I wanted to capture for posterity today is that we're actually making a contribution to the archives uh, today yeah so I have in my hand uh, here currently, the first six episodes of the Beth Zemsky podcast that we'll be handing off to Lisa today to be archived. Wonderful. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Beth. This is tremendous to have in the archive. It's a great addition to the Beth Zemsky collection. Um, I just want to mention that, you know, as a community, when you are a people that, that, don't get a lot of attention that people don't pay that people don't respond to um it's easy to think that our material isn't important and that our stories aren't worth saving and telling so like i said when we collect people's personal records we're not just collecting the famous people i'm looking at alan spear like i said one of the first out gay elected officials in the world but we also want to have the records of people who have just lived their lives and haven't made history and haven't been the first or the biggest or the best or the fastest or whatever it is, but have just built 
lives. And we want the photographs. We want the journals. We want the letters. We want the task force meeting minutes of the local church group that you worked on for five years to try and get them to be more more open and positive. We want the the letters with your children. We want we want those materials that tell a story of your life. And we'd be honored to have them in the archive. And the other thing I want to mention before we go, so that everybody knows, everyone is welcome to use the material and the Treader collection. You don't have to have a degree and a letter of introduction from someone in high standing. You all, need, all you have to do is call up or email and say, I'm coming in. These are the things I want to look at. I have junior high school students come in to do History Day projects. I have undergrads, grads, faculty. I have the press. I have the community. I have people coming from around the world to study here. But we are part of the University of Minnesota. We're a land-grant institution. Our commitment is to provide service to the citizens of Minnesota. So we are open and accessible, and there's no charge for using materials in the archive. Yeah. And that's actually one of the things that makes this archive a bit different than some of the other archives, where you need some sort of a university ID. And it was part of Jean's vision, obviously part of Lisa's vision, part of my vision, that all of us should have access to our history, because that's the only way we're going to really be able to plan our future. And as Beth mentioned, uh, Lisa, I understand your time is limited today. We want to thank you once again for being here for this very, very special episode. I, I couldn't be happier with the way it's, it's turned out. Um, and uh, maybe you can just give some people some who, what, when, where information about the Treader uh, collection if they'd like to come and check it out. Sure. What I would encourage people to do is look on our website or our Facebook page. Um, because I am retiring momentarily and because the next curator isn't starting until June, there's going to be a little bit of a gap, but keep an eye on our webpage. We'll always have the current contact information there. We will do our best to help you. Um, I'm just going to throw out there, we are a one-person operation, so please don't walk in the door and just show up and say, hey, I need, because if I'm like down here in the cavern talking to Ryan and Beth, there's nobody at my desk right now to help you. So we will be uh, more helpful to you if you can be helpful to us and just give us a heads up that you're coming and what you want to see. We'll have it waiting for you. Um, but but it, we're, we're not good with drop-ins because we're literally one person. So I just want to thank Lisa for your years of service to the community, um, not just as the archivist here, but also as the collector and all the other work you've done from the battered women's movement through the political stuff to be in here, right? And I know you're going to continue to do work. Um, I want to thank Ryan for choosing to do this for our 100th episode um, and the seventh episode of mine, um, because I think this is one of those moments as our movements are moving forward at an accelerated pace to be firmly grounded in where we've been and to be able to celebrate the history that got us here and to keep learning the lessons from the past. I couldn't agree more. Thank you very much for your time today, Lisa. Great. Thank you. back up on ground level we want to thank lisa for her time uh today joining us for this episode uh but beth um as as we're wrapping up here uh we wanted to talk a little bit about so so that's where we've been but you wanted to be sure to talk about the archives role in current and future movement activities right so one of the things that um i 
we talked about the very beginning of the episode is that movement activity happens in a number of ways. It's not just carrying signs and going to protest. So those, those things are important. It's also the decisions when each of us, that each of us make to take our lives seriously and to take our movement history seriously and to take the ways that we love and show up and care for each other seriously. And sometimes we do that by saving our materials and giving it to the archives so other folks can actually be grounded in where we've been as we move forward. Sometimes it's um, ways that we express what we most deeply care about in multiple ways. So by way of example, my partner's a poet and she doesn't always think of her poetry as movement activity. But it is, because it's a way to convey what do we most deeply care about and call people into a deeper connection with their own values and a connection to the world around them. Um, I was watching the um, March for Our Lives, um, and in addition to the speeches, which were really moving, some of the really powerful ways that our deepest held values were conveyed at that march was through the songs and through the signs. Um, and, I, and I think that in some of the art, not just the words on the signs, and some of the humor of the signs. So as I think as all of us think about how do we create our history, to think about what are the various talents and gifts that we bring, Lisa brings the gift of archiving, right? Jean brought the vision of archiving. But I really encourage people, what is your gift? And what are the ways that you're going to bring that to our movements to create the kind of world we all want? And of course, one final thing, Beth, since this is technically also episode seven of the Best Zemsky podcast, would you like to let folks know about anything you might have coming up in the near future? Yeah. So first of all, I wanted to just acknowledge that we did the first six episodes as a pilot. And I've heard from some people, oh, I thought your podcast was over. So one thing that's coming up is, no, we're going to do at least uh -huh. another six episodes. And I want to thank you all for the positive response to the first six. So that's the first thing. The other thing is I'm doing a ton of work um, with organizations continuing around equity work. Um, I'm going to also be working on a new project that um, I won't say what it is yet because it's not been launched, but really thinking about um, how do we make a blueprint from Minnesota for the next couple of decades that really takes into account urban, rural, and has racial equity at the core of how we think about development in the state. And I'm going to only have a little part of that, but I'm honored to be part of that. And then the other thing I encourage folks to really be paying attention to as we move through the next few months is what's happening in terms of movement development, because we're in one of those moments where we've got, like we sort of did in the 60s and 70s, we've got deep movement activity happening in African-American communities, deep movement activity happening in Native American indigenous communities, deep youth organizing happening, deep stuff happening in LGBT community, deep stuff happening around immigration, deep stuff happening around class and employment issues like like the, um, the, the, the fight for 15. So there are all these places where we think about any one of these movements, there's deep activity happening and how do we keep making the connections between them as we build to really taking back power. We never really gave it away, but we're, we don't have the power to govern right now. The power that we have is really in networking and remembering that we're interconnected. And we really need to recapture the power to govern because what's happening right now is eroding all of our futures. And with that, that is going to wrap up uh, this very special episode of the Twin Cities Pride podcast and the Beth Zemsky podcast. Thank you all for listening and we'll see you next time. The TC Pride Podcast is a production of Podletter Media and Twin Cities Pride. Subscribe now on iTunes, on Android, or by email at tcpridepodcast.org.
Get above the noise by raising your voice. Podletter Media turns your email newsletter, blog, or video content into a more powerful, more personal, more intimate, on-demand listening experience. Your podcast, your story, your voice. Simplified. Amplified. Learn more now at podletter.com.